to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to uh, this edition of NeuroPodcases. Um, I'm here with Mr Nick Cotton-Bland, who is neurosurgeon here at the Walton Centre. Um, and he's kind of going to give us his time today to talk about an approach to back pain. Welcome, uh, Mr. Cartman. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much good, for good. asking me to speak to you today. No worries. So, back pain is a very common and also a clinically difficult presentation. There are many reasons why a patient presents with back pain, some concerning and some not so concerning. Um, and it's something that I think all doctors need to be relatively comfortable with because they're going to come across it. How, how, how do you approach back pain? Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think back pain up with headache is, is probably the most common reason to, to go to your GP. Um, it is something which almost every adult will experience uh, at least once a year to, to some extent. So it, it's a huge, huge burden of disease. So the spinal surgeons uh, in the UK, uh, neurosurgeons and orthopaedic training, um, basically have come together to create a national back pain pathfinder. Now, the reason for this is because, as you've intimated, the majority of back pain is musculoskeletal origin which is benign self-limiting and doesn't need to see a doctor the problem is when with doctors is if you say to the, the, the doctor you've got a back pain the next thing they're going to reach for is maybe some medications and possibly a scan and the scan is, is a very expensive and the evidence is is that scanning for back pain with no neurological signs is is of limited utility so we're seeking to demedicalize back pain and put back pain as a like a bit of a sore knee or a sore elbow. It's a musculoskeletal problem, um, and so really a doctor should be involved after the patient has been seen by their GP, uh, or maybe not even their GP. Maybe in fact physiotherapy should be leading um, this before they come to see a specialist. So. Back pain, generally, we don't understand the mechanisms completely, but there is a lot of gubbins in the back that could potentially cause pain, um, being being the the joints, the facet joints at the back, um, the muscles, the core muscles surrounding the spine, um, and the discs themselves. All of them are densely innervated and can certainly create uh, problems. I I, I think that I see a lot of musculoskeletal, muscular predominance um, for the majority of of pains. Um, And... There's very good evidence for this. The Cochrane Review 2017 looked at all the treatments for back pain and essentially core stability exercises. Yoga and Pilates is the number one. Um, so what is a treatment dose of core stabilising exercises? Well, the evidence is four months. Four months. Most patients won't stick to that. Most patients mm-hmm. do not have the same power because actually when you start to use your back, it flares things up and a lot of people stop at that uh, level. But really the evidence should be some simple analgesia, possibly, although... Nice guidelines have actually gone away from, 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 from using that, um, but certainly exercise. Uh, and in the future, I think we'll be able to prescribe exercise, and I think there's plans for GPs to be able to do that. Um, but certainly physiotherapy is useful because they are the experts on, on the exercises, but also they can screen for what we would term kind of red flag symptoms. Mm. Um, what are red flag symptoms? Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's a great uh, invention, really, and there aren't many other areas of medicine where you have this idea of flags, red flags, I think it's a great idea. So what the red flag symptoms are, are key symptoms that you should always inquire for that raise suspicion of dangerous pathology, malignant type pathology. So what, what things are they looking for? Well, broadly, they're looking for if there is neurological complications, neurological deficits. What do the nerves do? 
in the spinal cord or in the in, in the corda equina, which is the peripheral nerves in the lumbar spine. Um, well, movement, sensation, bladder valve. Those are the three model, modalities. So, you, so a red flag symptom would be a change in any of those modalities, movement, sensation, or bladder valve dysfunction. The other things that red flag symptoms are looking for are signs of instability. Now, we've talked about stability, and certainly it's in some of the other podcasts that we've done, but the, the stability of the spine essentially are, are, are a couple of criteria uh, that devised by Punjabi and White in the 1970s, and essentially a healthy spine, a stable spine, is a spine which under physiological loading, so not carrying a crazy heavy weight, but under your own body weight, you should be able to comfortably, pain-free move, and you shouldn't develop any sort of neurological deficits. So those are the two main criteria. Um, and so the other red flags look to see really is there excessive pain often nocturnal pain um, uh, and these those really point towards pathological processes within the the structural element of the spine so you can think of the neurological element of the spine and the structural element of the spine and the structure the things which affect structure are things like tumors that can erode the bone uh, and cause the whole house of cards to, to fall over or perhaps infections and you know discitis and tb could all be uh, potential pathologies. So that's what the red flags are looking for. So when you're assessing a patient with back pain, it's to get their, you know, their history and, and, and their, their baseline uh, function, um, but really to screen for the red flags. And that is the, the doctor medical mm. job. Um, there is a lot of work that you can do to inquire. Uh, and I think if, if your listeners were particularly interested, they could go into that. But I think from a sort of medical student, MRCS type approach, mm. really, we need to be thinking about stability. So stability is neurology, and structure, uh, and that's what the red flags are looking for. Fantastic. Okay, okay. So that's a, a great first step to um, sift through all the back pain presentations that, that, that people would will come across. Um, I'd like to move on to some of the sort of more concerning presentations that, that can come with back pain. So obviously, you said the vast majority would end up being musculoskeletal, and clearly, exercise uh, has been shown to be a benefit in that, that cohort of patients. Um, so to talk about the cohort patients where it's probably not musculoskeletal, um, what are the kind of main concerning presentations that you'd want students and doctors to have in their mind when they see anyone with back pain? Yeah, so I think we are going to come back to trauma, which is a very obvious, a very quick deterioration, and move to the slightly subacute. Um, and I think really, going back to that definition of stability, any spinal pathology that is associated with, with neurological dysfunction is, is, is of a concern. Um, and the most common presentation and one of the most important presentations to, to, to really recognise is, is the corda equina syndrome. And I think, you know, I would expect any medical student, any junior doctor to, to know about this. Why? Why are we so obsessed with this? Well, corda equina syndrome is compression to the peripheral nerves in the lumbar spine. Um, so-called so, so horse's tail, hence mm -hmm. corda equina syndrome. Um, why are we so bothered about it? Because it, it's, it's a relatively common uh, nerve injury uh, to, to acquire. It is incredibly important for the patient. Um, and in a recent survey of patients uh, where they had to quote, what is a fate worse than death? The symptoms that are worse than a fate worse than death and an independent sort of uh, panel of patients would be to fe be fecally and urinary incontinent and have to know, no sexual function. So it's probably the worst set of symptoms. And that is what a patient with a missed cord acquire could potentially end up like. So it's, it's a hugely, hugely important for the patient. Mm. Now, thinking about 
for the trust, um, it is a hugely important diagnosis to, to get right mm. um, in terms of litigation. Um, the average payout for a quarter, missed quarter acquirer is a quarter of a million pounds. Um, and through NHS litigation at any one point, there are 30 to 40 million pounds outstanding for quarter acquirer syndrome. So it's a hugely important for the trust mm. to, to, to um, pick up upon. Um, and also, the other reason why we have to think about it is that there is a reasonably poor clinical presentation. And so these patients often have to go for a scan to actually can clinch the diagnosis. Mm. So what are the, what are the core features of it? Well, um, what we, what's termed as sciatica, so bilateral leg pains shooting down towards the, the foot. So radiculopathy, so painful radiculopathy. So, so you're allowed to have it unilateral. Unilateral sciatica is incredibly common. Mm. Bilateral to have pain on both sides from a slip disc suggests that there is a pathology that is consuming you know, both sides of the spinal column and, and probably in the middle as well. Mm. So you, it, it's pointing towards a larger uh, uh, disc. A second core feature is the perineal sensory loss. And I think out of all the three things that we think about with chordoquina, that is the most important step. And I'll come on to why that is in a second. Mm. And then finally with chordoquina syndrome, it's painless urinary incontinence. Um, uh, so painless retention and then overflow urinary incontinence. It's very important to nail down and drill down on what the incontinence is because there's stress incontinence and there's urge incontinence and they are not what we see with a neurogenic bladder. It is the bladder fills painlessly and then the patient leaks. Um, and that's it. those are the three things. Now, of those three things, the bilateral radiculopathy, the perineal sensory loss and the bladder dysfunction, why did I say the perineal sensory loss is probably the most important thing? Well, that is probably... We, we think about chordoquina is chordoquina in evolution. You get a slip disc, which in 95% of the times it is. The slip disc comes and presses on the nerves. You get the pain, and most patients just stop there. But then they can progress to initially get perineal sensory loss and then finally bladder dysfunction. So the perineal sensory loss is the chordoquina in evolution. It is progressing to potential or threatened bladder loss. Um, if we intervene at that point, then the risk of the patient having normalised sexual function and continence is high. Mm. When we go to the point of the patient having incontinence and having a high residual volume on, on bladder scans, then even if you do the surgery at that point, those functions don't come back. So we want to intervene at a point at which there's a good chance of improving those, those vital functions. Um, what is a time scale? We've talked about how it's a time critical thing. We don't know. We don't know. 24 to 48 hours is probably the maximum time scale on which we would want to wait before before surgery so pretty much as soon as a patient presents with these features we would want the local A&Es to get a urgent MRI scan um, a CT scan is not adequate uh, to show the nerves and to show the discs on the basis of that if there's a very large slip disc then they would come to a, a specialist centre and have that operation done overnight if need be but, but urgently what how often do patients who present with chordoquina actually have a big slip disc pressing on the nerves about one in 40 it is a very very low pickup rate okay. Um, and so these patients are challenging for A&Es because um, there's a huge amount of people who have back pain and leg pains but don't have the chordoquina syndrome. So that's a little little encapsulation of chordoquina. Was there anything? No, I think that's great. I think um, knowing that chordoquina syndrome is a clinical diagnosis based on those three main core features you spoke about, but that the clarification of the diagnosis has to come from a MRI scan only really yeah. and whether that means you have to do it at the centre that you're at or transfer the patient for an urgent MRI that's you know dependent on local protocols and also to 
understand the concept that this is a thing in evolution. This is mm -hmm. not a you are, you have it or you don't have it. That yeah. you can intervene at a point when you can do an awful lot to uh, affect the patient's outcome. Mm -hmm. And the things you have to do, it's a very, it's, as, as you explained it there, it's a relatively simple clinical assessment, mm -hmm. actually, that can, get, can send you down the right pathway diagnostically. Yeah. Okay, very good. So I think the other back presentation that we as junior doctors uh, worry about is, is metastatic spinal cord compression. Absolutely, and, and, and similarly to cord requirement, um, it may not figure in your thinking unless you are specifically thinking, what do I need to rule out? What as a clinician in this sea, in this mire of benign back pain, what do I need to make sure I'm not missing? Mm. Um, and asking uh, about you know, bladder and bowel dysfunction is not something that we, even as qualified doctors find easy to do or mm. patient feels easy to to report but we have to be doing that so with metastatic spinal cord compression it's it's an incredibly common phenomenon to get metastasis to the spine why is that well the axial spine is the main source of hematopoiesis it is very very richly vascularized and as remember batson's venous plexus from the from the pelvis up towards the spine and um, there's a very rich valveless blood supply to the spine so something like apparently 30% of everyone with cancer will have some element of metastasis to the spine. So it's incredibly common. Um, most of those metastases sit there quietly and don't cause the patient problems. But going back to our model of stability, if it affects the structure of the spine, it can cause huge amounts of pain and deformity. If that tumour continues to grow and, and presses onto the spinal cord, then it will create neurology. So it will create instability in that way. I think one of the traditional issues with patients with cancer is they say, I have pain, and the, the reflex is, well, you've got cancer, and you know, we'll, we'll try and make you as comfortable as possible. Um, and that is the way that metastatic spinal cord compression um, was, was treated, and these patients would have huge amounts of back pain, become paralysed, and then die of the sequelae of being paralysed. Because mm. um, when you lose your spinal cord function, a lot of things go wrong, so you become urinary incontinent, which puts you at risk of urinary tract infections, um, there can be bowel management issues which can cause constipation which can lead to systemic sepsis or even perforation. There is immunability of the legs so the risk of getting deep vein thromboses increase and there is the inability to move the legs and that can lead to pressure sores which can be infected. So there's, there's a huge amount of sequelae um, and so a chap called Patchell had a look at this and, and said well you know, can we improve the situation because everyone got radiotherapy traditionally and so there was this hallmark landmark uh, trial looking at actually not just blasting it with radiotherapy and accepting that the the cord was was affected and not useful actually doing an operation to decompress the cord in a timely manner and then to put in some scaffolding some metal work to to fix the spine and the results of that randomized trial um, showed that patients not just remained mobile had intact bladder function had less pain higher quality of life they actually lived longer as well so it's this unbelievable trial, which was the basis of the NICE guidelines that we now all operate on, that anyone with cancer, with signs and symptoms of possible core compression, so going back to those red flag features, intractable back pain, often described as nocturnal back pain, for, for some reason it seems to be more painful at night, I think because of less other distractions, or neurology, so new weakness in the legs, sensation changes in the legs, or bladder bowel dysfunction, and if they have cancer, then we have to think about metastatic spinal cord compression. And there is a NICE guideline pathway and any patient at any time in any hospital with an MRI scanner can get a scan within 24 hours. Those are the guidelines um, that the entire country works towards. 
if they do have compression, if it's a single level, not every single spinal level affected, and if they have a good prognosis, so greater than six months, then we would offer urgent surgery to decompress the spinal cord and to stabilise. Um, how many metastatic spinal cord compressions actually go to surgery? It's probably in the order of about 5 to 10%. Uh, unfortunately, the majority of patients who have cancer have diffuse metastasis to the spine, as you would imagine, because it's a hugely vascularized organ. Um, but if, you, if, if there is a very focal uh, lesion in a patient who has a good prognosis, then we would um, we think about uh, offering the operation. So again, in the mire of back pain that the medical students and, and junior doctors will think, they have to think, has this patient got cancer? Could this be metastatic core compression? Um, have they got... Yeah, the signs and features of chordoacrylic syndrome. I must ask about the bladder and bowel. And I think that that's again, it's it's one of these jobs, as I mentioned before, that when we're taking a history of back pain, we have to specifically inquire about bladder and bowel function, sensation and movement. Because if you don't ask, the patient often won't report, and we could be missing a vital symptom that they just are too embarrassed about to talk about. Mm. Thank you very much. Um, so I think that's the the presentations. The more the subacute ones, um, yeah. and I think uh, we should perhaps focus a little bit towards the end on uh, spinal cord trauma, spinal trauma in general. Yeah. Um, what would you like to impart uh, <laughs> to, to, to us about that? Yeah. So I mean, I mean, um, spinal injury is yeah, it's a relatively common uh, injury because the spine uh, obviously is a central core to the body, and so any sort of traumatic injury uh, could potentially affect the spine. Uh, the cervical spine is the most mobile because we need to be able to turn our head to attend stimuli uh, and therefore the, the, the higher the mobility of the spine the more uh, the, the less inherent stability it has and the more likely it is to get injured so um, think about it generally most spinal injuries are fall or a motorcycle accident or it's usually something with high energetics usually most of those are structural only so the patient's broken a bone or they've pulled a ligament I mean it doesn't hurt like hell but it's not something that's inherently going to give them a long-term deficit necessarily so most injuries are structural but there is a small cohort that are structural and neurological so they have uh, they have true instability because they are in pain and they uh, and they're unable to to bear weight and they have neurological deficit you know due to compression um, and it's those patients which I think um, are probably the most important to talk about today um, as, as a whole pathway to, to think about so as I've intimated um, usually these are high energy in injuries it's usually young people in motorcycle accidents or, or doing diving or trampoline accidents it's usually high energy injuries um, as a footnote uh, to say obviously if there's a, an inherent spinal problem so something like osteoporosis then the trauma levels are, are much less um, but usually speaking we talk about a young patient who's had a significant injury um, and the way these patients present uh, can be really Pretty, pretty shocking. So a cervical spine injury could present with quadriplegia. Um, other modalities uh, subserved by the by the cervical spine is the phrenic nerve, C345. And so these patients can present with uh, poor respiratory function, and they can actually go into respiratory failure as, as part of their part of their early presentation. Um, so again, in a trauma call situation, the patient comes in. Uh, they've been playing rugby. The the the, the rook has collapsed. Um, and now they can't move their arms and legs, um, what do we do? Well, we know that the cervical spine is incredibly unstable, so all of these patients will be packaged up by uh, the ambulances uh, in triple immobilised, so they'll have a hard spinal board, a collar and blocks to prevent flexion extension and rotation and to minimise a second primary injury. Mm. Um, 
and then they'll come for whole spine CT imaging to see if there's anything obviously awry in terms of uh, a dislocation or a fracture um, that might need to be to be uh, rectified. If that is normal, then usually we're going to look for an MRI scan because there could be a hematoma or a slip disc that, that could cause those, those issues. So previously, a broken neck causing cord compression, patients were mainly treated conservatively. We didn't think that putting a polytrauma patient through an operation at this stage would be beneficial. But again, a really important landmark uh, trial run, run in the US called Staxis showed that for patients with a broken spine with cord compression, if you go in there and you do the operation within about 24 hours, again, we're hearing 24 hours in cord equina, we're hearing it in MSCC, and now we're hearing it in trauma, there must be some truth that neural tissue can take about 24 hours worth of compression and then the game is up and the ischemic uh, damage is too much. So within 24 hours, if you fix a broken spine, you can massively improve the outcome uh, in terms of neurology. And we use, for spinal cord injury, we use the American Spinal Injuries Association, the ASIA score, that look at those three modalities, motor, sensory and bladder and bowel. So that's the kind of surgical treatments. If we can diagnose cord compression, we can operate on it, jobs are good. But again, it goes back to the issues after we as surgeons have, have done our job. It's the, the immobile patient and the, and the things that they face. So again, we're looking at skin management, DVT, bowel and bladder management. Um, and if it's a high cervical, the respiratory management. Um, often when we have medical students on the wards, they say, well, there must be something else. What about steroids? That's all we, that always comes up. What about steroids for cord injury? Um, and th- th- there's a really great amount of evidence, um, the NASCIS trial, that show that steroids don't help for a traumatically injured brain or spinal cord, they don't help. Um, what they do help in is where there's cancer and there's a loss of the tight junctions um, and there's abnormal uh, interstitial fluid. But for this kind of cytotoxic edema, there is no benefit from steroids. And so really the only benefit that's been shown pretty much is early decompression. Mm. There are many, many trials for brain and spine injury looking at cooling, infusions of vitamins, um, uh, certain anti-glutamate uh, drugs to try and uh, to minimise the injury. So far, nothing is really working. Uh, it may well be that stem cell therapy is is, is something that uh, that may bear some fruit. Um, but at the moment, we're really at supporting supporting the patient. Uh, and as a very important part of spinal cord injury patient support, psychological support is massive because these patients are often young. Mm. Um, often they. You know, we were intending perhaps to have children, um, and that's still possible through sperm donation or, 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 or uh, egg harvesting. Uh, but um, this is a devastating, life-changing uh, injury for the patient. Um, so there's, there is a specific uh, teaching on spinal cord injury. But I think it's, it was important just to, to cover that uh, today, just to, to, to put it out there as a, as a really vital topic for uh, the neurosurgical aspect of spine. listening to this episode look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly